Chapter 1 of Workhouse Characters This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Workhouse Characters by Margaret Nevinson Chapter 1 Eunice Smith, Drunk The ball no question makes of eyes and nose, But here and there as strikes the player goes, and he that tossed you down into the field, he knows about it all. He knows. He knows. Eunice Smith, drunk, brought by the police. The quaint scriptural name, not heard for years, woke me up from the dull apathy to which even the most energetic guardian is reduced at the end of a long board meeting, and I listened intently as the master of the workhouse went on to explain that the name Smith had been given by the woman, but her clothes and a small book, which the doctor said was Homer in Greek, were marked Eunice Romaine. Eunice Romaine. The name took me back down long vistas of years to a convent school at Oxford, to the clanging bells of Tom Tower, to the vibrant note of boys' voices in college chapels, to the scent of flowers and incense at early celebrations, to the high devotions and ideals of youth to its passionate griefs and joys. Eunice Romaine had been the genius of our school, one of those gifted students in whom knowledge seems innate. Her name headed every examination list, and every prize in the form fell to her. Other poor plodders had no chance where she was. From school she had gone with many a scholarship and exhibition to Cambridge, where she had taken a high place in the classical tripos, Later I heard she had gone as classical mistress to one of the London high schools. Then our paths had separated, and I heard no more. I went down to the observation ward after the meeting, where between a maniacal case lying in a straight waistcoat, alternately singing hymns and blaspheming, and a tearful melancholic who begged me to dig up her husband's body in the northeast corner of the garden, I saw my old friend and classmate. She was lying very quiet with closed eyes. Her hair had gone grey before her time, and her face was pinched and scored with the deep perpendicular lines of grief and disappointment. But I recognised the schoolgirl Eunice by the broad intellectual brow, and by the delicate high-bred hands. "'She's rather better,' said the nurse in answer to my question. "'But she has had a very bad night, screaming the whole time at the rats and mice,' that she thought she saw, and the doctor fears collapse, as her heart is weak. But if she can get some sleep, she may recover. Sleep in the crowded mental ward, with maniacs shrieking and shouting around. But exhausted nature can do a great deal, and when I call some days later, I find my old friend discharged to the general sick ward. A placard above her head setting forth her complaint as chronic alcoholism, cirrhosis of the liver and cardiac disease. She recognised me at once, but with the apathy of weakness she expressed neither surprise nor interest at our meeting, and only after some weeks had passed I found her one evening brighter and better and anxious to go out. Over an impromptu banquet of grapes and cakes we fell into one of those intimate conversations that come so spontaneously but are so impossible to force and I heard the short history of a soul's tragedy. 
Just after I left Cambridge, Mother died. She told me on her deathbed that I had the taint of drink in the blood and urged me never to touch alcohol. My father, a brilliant scholar and successful journalist, had killed himself with drink whilst we were all quite young. Mother had kept us all away at school so that we should not know and had borne her burden alone. I promised light-heartedly I was young and strong and had not known temptation. After Mother died I was very lonely. Both my brothers had gone to Canada. My father's classical and literary abilities had come only to me. Their talents were purely mechanical and they had never been able to acquire book knowledge. I was not very happy teaching. Classics had come to me so easily, hereditary question again, that I never could understand the difficulties of the average girl, and I had very little patience with dullness and stupidity. However, very soon I became engaged to be married, and lived for some time in a fool's paradise of love and joy. My fiancé was a literary man. I will not tell you his name, as he is one of those who have arrived, but it is difficult to start, and we waited about two years before he got an appointment sufficiently secure to make marriage possible. I was very busy. We had taken a flat, and I was engaged in choosing furniture and preparing my humble trousseau. I had given notice at the school, and the wedding day was within a fortnight, when one morning I got a letter from my fiancé, couched in wild allegorical language, bemoaning his unworthiness, but asking me to release him from his engagement, as he found his love for me had been a mirage, now that he had come across his twin soul. I read the letter over and over again, hardly grasping the meaning, when there fell from the envelope a little newspaper cutting that I had overlooked. It was the announcement of his marriage three days before, to his twin soul. Still I was unable to realise what had happened. I kept saying over and over to myself, Charlie is married, but in my heart I did not believe it. That afternoon the headmistress came to see me. She was very kind, and took me herself to a brain specialist, who said I had had a nervous shock, that I ought to have a rest, and mountain air would be best for me. The council of my school agreed to take me back again and allow me a term's holiday on full pay. One of my colleagues, it was holiday time, came with me to Switzerland, and there, amid the ice and snow of the high latitudes, the full understanding of what had come to me dawned upon my mind, and I realised the pangs of despised love, of jealousy and hate. A narkshine of Christianity suddenly made me rush back to England in terror of what might happen. It is easy to commit suicide in Switzerland, and a certain black precipice near the hotel drew me ever towards it with baleful fascination. Someone dragged me again to Harley Street, and this time the great specialist advised sea air and cheerful society. The latter prescription is not available for lonely and jilted high school mistresses in London, but I tried sea air, and it did me good. I don't think for a moment that the doctor realised that I was practically off my head. The terrible obsession of love and jealousy had me in its grip. It had taken me some time to fall in love, and I could not fall out again to order, whilst the knowledge that the man who had broken his promise to me 
now belonged to another woman, was driving me to madness. One day I went down to bathe, and suddenly determined to end my woe. I swam out far to sea, so far that I judged it beyond my force ever to get back. But though my will commanded my limbs to cease their work, they refused to obey. I was always a very strong swimmer, and I landed again more humiliated than ever. I had not even the pluck to end my sorrows. After that I went back to work. Mountains and sea had no message for me. I was better sitting at my desk in the classroom, trying to drill Latin and Greek into the unresponsive brains of girls. I got through the days, but the nights were terrible. All the great army of forsaken lovers know that the nights are the worst. I used to lie awake, hour after hour, sobbing and crying for mercy and strength to endure, and I used to batter my head against the floor, not knowing anyone could hear. One night a fellow lodger, who slept in the next room, came in and begged me to be quiet. She had her work to do, and night after night I kept her awake with my sobbing. I suppose it is all about some wretched man, she observed coolly, but believe me, they are not worth the love we give them. I left my husband some years ago, finding that he'd been carrying on with a woman who called herself my friend. At first I cried and sobbed, just as you do now, but I felt such a fool making such a fuss about a man who had played it down so low that I made up my mind I would forget him, and in time you will get over this, and give thanks that you have been delivered from a liar and a traitor. She gave me a glass of strong brandy and water. It was the first I had ever tasted, and I remember how it ran warm through my veins, and how I slept as I had not slept for months. My fellow lodger and I became great friends. She was quite an uneducated woman, the matron of a laundry, but she braced me up like a tonic with her keen humour and experience of life. How strange it seems for a middle-aged drunkard in a pauper infirmary to be telling this ancient love-tale and posing as one of the aristocracy of passionate souls. But two pass, two cass, and after years of anguish and strife, I woke up one bright spring morning and felt that I was cured and forever free of the wild passion of love. That day always stands out as the happiest of my life. I shall never forget it. It was Saturday and a holiday, and I got on my bicycle and rode off for miles, far into the country, singing the Benedict for pure joy. I lunched at a little inn on the Thames, and ordered some champagne to celebrate the recovery of my liberty. But by strange irony of fate, the very day I escaped from the tours of love, I fell under another tyranny, that of alcohol. Now, Peg. I started at the unfamiliar old nickname of my school days. I believe you are crying. Having shed more than my own share of tears, nothing irritates me so much as to see another woman cry, and if you don't stop, I'll not say another word. I drew my handkerchief across my eyes, and admitted to a cold in the head. Shortly afterward I received notice to leave the high school. I did not mind. I always hated teaching, and I found that I had the power of writing. An article that I could flash off in a few hours would keep me for a week, and I could create my own paradise for half a crown. Now, Peg, 
you are crying again. But of late, life was not so bad. I enjoyed writing, and shall always be thankful I can read Greek. Besides, I was not always drunk. The craving only takes me occasionally, and at its worst, alcohol is a kinder master than love. I shall be well enough to go out in a few days. Bring me some pens and paper, and my editor will advance me some money. I am going to write an article on workhouse infirmaries that will startle the public. What do you know of workhouses? You are only a guardian. Tis we musicians, or rather inmates, who know. The article never got written. The next day I found Eunice very ill. She was unconscious and delirious till her death, reeling off sonorous hexameters from Homer and Virgil and stately passages from the Greek tragedians. We spared her a pauper funeral, and a few old school and college friends gathered round the grave. A white-haired professor of world fame was there also, and he shook hands with us as we parted at the cemetery gates. Poor Eunice, he said, his aged face working painfully, one of the best Greek scholars of the day, and the daughter of my oldest friend, both of them geniuses, and both of them with the same taint in the blood, but I feel I ought not to have let her come to this. I think we all felt the same as we walked sadly home. End of chapter 1 Recording by Florence